for filling in at the last minute and having your choir with us. That was good. She did a good job. All right. Well, here we are again. And um, we're, we're continuing our study of the, chap- the book of Luke, and we're in chapter 2. Um, and uh, we're going to mainly focus on verses 21 through 24 this morning. Uh, but to remind us of our context, we're going to go back to verse 15, at least, where we were last week on Christmas Day, and uh, move forward so that we can, um, uh, so we can move uh, into our next text here. And then just give me one second here. There we go. had to make, change my, my settings were off. Okay, so let's look at Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. I pray as we study it together, Lord, that you would make it alive in our hearts and our minds, that we would sense the reality of what we're learning, that you would give us each an application of the text, Lord, that we could take with us to live out in our lives. And that you would assist us to do that, Lord, by your Holy Spirit's power. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning again, we're in the middle of chapter 2 of Luke. So just a quick recap of where we have been in the book of Luke so far. Uh, It's actually, even though we're in chapter 2, first chapter's like 80 verses, so it's a pretty long first chapter. Um, But thus far, we studied in the first section of the first chapter the why of the letter. And then we looked at the encounter of Zechariah with the angel Gabriel and the announcement that he would have a son named John who would be the one to prepare the way for Christ. 
We encountered Mary, uh, we studied Mary's encounter with the same angel, Gabriel, and her announcement. We observed Mary go to visit Elizabeth and how the baby John leapt in the womb when Mary came in and Mary gave the Magnificat, the song of praise to magnify the Lord. We learned of John's birth, the excitement surrounding that, the prophecy of Zechariah when his tongue was set free after his times of silence. And then we celebrated the birth of Jesus together. And last Sunday, Christmas Day, we considered the shepherds and the angels. And this week, we're going to examine what Mary and Joseph did out of a religious obligation in order to keep the law of Moses, as I mentioned, in verses 21 to 24. Before I get there, however, I want to go back just a moment to the end of the portion we looked at last week on Christmas Day. And that is verse 20. The, the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Now, there's a lesson here for some of us who lament whenever Christmas is over. The decorations are coming down in the stores. The Christmas displays have already been replaced with Valentine's Day's or even someone just said St. Patrick's Day merchandise. And so the lights are going to soon come down. The carols will stop playing. And so many people at this time of year get sad that Christmas is over. Yet, for the Christian, it's a time when rather than being depressed at the loss of the holiday season, we can rejoice that the baby we celebrated has gone on to finish his work. And because he's finished his work, we can continue to celebrate the shepherds did not say as they returned to their flocks, well, too bad Christmas is over. We won't be seeing those angels again. Little baby's going to grow up and won't be so cute in a few years. No, the shepherds did not lament. But they were glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. So may I challenge you a bit and say, if you're feeling a bit blue about Christmas being over with, perhaps there's a contentment issue in your heart that requires examination. Because if you be in Christ, the rejoicing has only just begun. Whatever longing you have in your heart, whether it be for more fellowship or more joy or more peace or more of Jesus, if you are one of his, then you can have confidence that all of his promises will surely come true. In him, we will ultimately and eternally find perfect fellowship with God and with Christ and with our fellow creatures who share in our inheritance. We look forward to finding perfect joy, perfect peace, and eternal bliss because he will keep his promises to those he has called his own. So do not despair that the holiday is over. There's no need to cling to Christmas, as wonderful as it is, but keep the joy of Christmas with you throughout the year, just as Scrooge did after his repentance. But now we must move forward to our next text in the preaching on these verses, which carry within them some superb lessons for us to apply in our lives. So the big idea, first of all, is that, hum that obedient people strive to obey and that the humble are exalted. As we consider these four verses, we're learning from the examples of Mary and Joseph 
who did not discontinue their faithfulness to God after the birth of Jesus, but continued to honor God in the keeping of his statutes as well. What did we find in those parents keeping the law? Well, we find that they keep it not only from obedience, but also in response to his great gift. We find that they desired to please God, and we find that they would glorify God. So again, I'm just going to quickly read 21 to 24. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord a pair of turtle doves, or two young pigeons. To help us understand the background of what's happening here, I'm going to read one of the shortest chapters in the book of Leviticus. If you've ever done a reading plan and you've been in Leviticus, you can testify that there are some chapters that may take you a while to read through. This is one of the shorter ones. But I think it's important because it helps us to understand what's going on here in Luke chapter 2. So let's look at Leviticus chapter 12. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. As at the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy, nor come into the sanctuary, until the days of her purifying are completed. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks, as in her menstruation, and she shall continue in the blood of her purifying for 66 days. And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb, a year old, for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. The first of the commands was kept here out of Leviticus 12 was the circumcision of Jesus. We find the history of circumcision and the command for it in the Pentateuch, that is the books of law or the first five books in the Bible. Uh, God first gave the instruction to Abraham in Genesis 17, verse 12. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. And then it was reaffirmed in Leviticus, which we just read. It was commanded on the eighth day. So high was the importance that it be done on the eighth day that Jesus mentioned how circumcision could be done on the Sabbath if the eighth day happened to fall on the Sabbath. We see that in John chapter 7, verse 22 and 23. Moses gave you, this is the words of Christ, Moses gave you circumcision, Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. 
If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? The context here where Jesus is saying this is that Jesus was being challenged because he healed a man on the Sabbath, which some of the religious people thought was work. And therefore, they thought it violated the Sabbath commandment not to work. Jesus, more or less, is saying there are situations where the Sabbath is broken without violating the spirit of it. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, Jesus said. Circumcision was a sign of devotion to God. For Paul, he noted that it was one of those things that the Jewish people considered when they were evaluating their devotion to God, because when he listed his own credentials, he included the fact that he was circumcised. That shows us it was important to him to know that he was circumcised. Philippians 3, 5. He's talking about himself here, Paul. He says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As he was circumcised in obedience to the law, Jesus was named according to the command of God given through the messenger Gabriel. And that was in Matthew 121. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Matthew 125 says that Joseph knew her not until she had given birth to a son and called his name Jesus. And also in Luke 131, uh, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Just as John was named in accordance with the message of God, so was his cousin Jesus. The other command they obeyed was the command to present their firstborn to the Lord and make a sacrifice for him. Now, it may seem odd that there would need to be a sacrifice or atonement for Mary, since her baby was of the Holy Spirit, yet it was important to keep the law in every respect. Remember why, in response to the great gift of God, and that they might please him, and that they might glorify him. Jesus did many things that may seem to have been okay to skip over, since he was indeed God. Surely not all the requirements for mere mortals apply to him, right? Yet Mary and Joseph made the sacrifice as was required. It showed their faithfulness. Just as Jesus, not needing forgiveness of sins, yet was baptized by John. The sacrifice, as we read, took took place 33 days after the circumcision. This was because of the laws of impurity. During childbirth, there is blood loss, and also this can continue for some time after. But this was also a mercy to the young mother. Being considered ceremonial unclean during this time, she would not be allowed to prepare food or travel and would be limited in having much contact with others. I'm sure if you asked any mother, they would agree that being free of household chores for the first six weeks would be a good thing. And not being required to travel to the temple until she uh, was 33 plus eight days past would also improve the chances that the journey then would be safe for both mother and the baby, since by then the feeding routine and such would be established. I mentioned in D6 last week and the youth group the week before that, that this passage tells us that most nativity scenes are wrong, <laughs> since they usually show the wise men visiting with their gifts at the same time as the shepherds. But since we have now established with what care that Mary and Joseph 
had taken to obey the law, most certainly they would not go with the sacrifice of a poor family if they had just received the very expensive gifts of frankincense, myrrh, and gold. It would be a dangerous thing indeed to mock God if, if one were rich and yet pretended to be poor simply to save a little on the sacrifice. So logically, if the wise men had arrived before this sacrifice, in other words, in the first 41 or 42 days, they would have made a sacrifice of a lamb. They would have taken the gold they had from the wise men and they would have bought the lamb. And they would not have done the turtle doves, which were reserved for mothers and fathers who could not afford a lamb. And so it is from yet another angle that we're reminded of Mary's poverty. Really, God has chosen many times those who had no standing in the world to do great things for his kingdom. And it seems that Mary was still poor as an older woman, since at the cross, Jesus commanded John to take Mary as if she were his own mother. Certainly, Mary, if she had had a great retirement account set up, Jesus would not have had to tell John to take care of her, right? But Goldman Sachs wasn't around back then. The lesson, then, that we learn from Mary and Joseph is that they set us an example of obedience to God. We actually know very little about these two, even though they have a central role in the story. The Bible tells us not very much. They say about Mary, she was a virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph. We've already said that we can guess that she was probably about 14 to six, or 12 to 14 years old. At the very oldest, I saw one scholar thought that it was maybe 16. But other than that, we know nothing else about Mary, other than that she was a relative of Elizabeth and was from a small village. We know even less about Joseph. We have no description of him at all. His occupation is given, but even the word used to translate there we may not be quite correct on it. He was said to be a craftsman or tradesman. And most Bible translations translate the word to carpenter, but this, the Greek word that's been translated to carpenter also could mean just a tradesman in general as well. So we don't know exactly, but suspect he might have been a carpenter. We don't know how tall he was. We don't know how old he was. We know that he must have been poor, or else he would not have bought the lamb, or he would have bought the lamb for Mary's sacrifice. So Joseph, unlike Mary, is not mentioned at the crucifixion accounts as well. So it's possible he had died before Jesus had grown up and died on the cross. What scripture does not say, we do not know for certain. Some think he might have been much older than Mary. It's feasible in light of the culture of that time, it's feasible he was much older than her. On the other hand, much like today, couples were normally within six years of each other. We do know that he was at least 20, since this would have been the minimum age at which he would have been required to appear for himself at the census. Any younger and his father would have been still covering for him in that case. So we don't know much about them, other than they were humble people with not much means, and they were obedient. Obedient people strive to obey, and the humble are exalted. Mary herself made note of this in the Magnificat, which we studied recently in Luke chapter 1, verse 52. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. But in many places in Scripture, words like these are repeated. Job 5.11, He sets on high those who are lowly, and those who mourn are lifted to safety. Psalm 75.7, 
It is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. Psalm 107.40, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. Psalm 113.7 and 8, he raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. Psalm 147.6, the Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Ezekiel 21.26, thus says the Lord God, remove the turban and take off the crown. Things shall not remain as they are. Exalt that which is low and bring low that which is exalted. And finally, James 4.10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Mary and Joseph were drawn into this story by the master storyteller who had, before the beginning, decided this course of human events. They had no special characteristics that we know of, only that God, in his good pleasure, chose them for this task. And in choosing them for this task, he enabled them to have the required strength, humility, and trust in God to do their part. And as I studied this passage, I wrote down this question, why? Why were they concerned with keeping the law? Were they particularly devout before these things happened? Were they given some sort of regeneration by the Holy Spirit that empowered them to keep this law? We cannot know beyond what Scripture tells us. But Scripture does tell us that God calls those he is pleased to use for his glory, and he saves those he chooses to save. So Mary and Joseph obeyed the angel regarding the birth of Jesus. They obeyed the law regarding the circumcision. They obeyed the angel in naming him. They obeyed the law in making the baby dedication and sacrifice. They did this, I believe, in response to God's great gift to them. God had blessed them with one of the most incredible parts in his salvation story. They were given the gift of faith to believe what Gabriel told them. And so they obeyed in response to his great gift. They also obeyed, I believe, out of a sincere desire to please God. And they obeyed to bring glory to God. Mary and Joseph were called to this important part. Many of us in this room have already responded in faith to the gift of God that is revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gift of a substitute who took our place to receive God's wrath towards sin. The gift of a Savior who died and was raised again and gives us the promise of eternal life. Who has received who, we who have received this gift are called to obedience as well. What is it that we are called to obey? All the commands of Christ. All the commands of Scripture. Why should we obey if we be in Christ? In response to his great gift. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. His gift, of course, is ultimately Christ himself, but he has also given us the gift of faith to believe. We are to obey that we might please him. This is a very different idea than some have thought. Some have thought that if we would please God by doing well in obedience to his ways, we might earn a place with him or turn away his wrath towards our sin. If only we would have a higher score on the obedience side than on the negatives of our sin. But that is impossible anyway. And that is backwards from why we want to live a life of obedience to him. We want to please him because he first loved us. Romans 5, 8. 
God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why wouldn't you desire to please Christ if he has saved you and shown his love to you in this way? I would argue that one who cares not about pleasing Christ probably has not really experienced this, this grace of salvation yet. For if you had true salvation, then you would desire to please him and be delighted to make the attempt in how you live, how you spend your time, how you spend your precious treasures, whether they be talents or gifts. Since all comes from him, all must be given back to him. And this is a great danger. There are many who appear to be pleasing him, many who keep the commands, yet have never had a true conversion. There are always false converts in the church. You may be one. I must warn you that unless you have truly believed unto salvation, you may be a false convert. I cannot assume everyone listening is truly saved because if everyone here were truly saved, well, then we would probably be the first church gathering in all of history with a completely pure congregation of true believers. But no, in this room, there are most certainly some without true salvation. Do you sit here in the presence of the preaching of the word, knowing it to be true for you and receiving in your gift of salvation? Or do you think to yourself smugly, I know a good bit of the Bible. I've sat in the pews a long time. I have given to the offering. I've served on a board. I've attended a study. I've volunteered. And yet Christ may say to you, I never knew you. It isn't about earning his approval because you could never do so. False converts come in all different forms. You could be a false convert as an eight-year-old. And you may have told your Sunday school teacher you wanted to pray about Jesus, but you only did it to please the teacher. Or you could be 80 years old and be a false convert, even having attended church since you were a baby. Don't think for a moment when I say we ought to live as to please Christ that I mean anything like the Catholic Church, which teaches you that you need Christ and works to make it. No, salvation is all of Jesus and no other. You cannot earn it. You must believe, and that is all. And when you come to true faith, and the words you hear preached become real to you in your mind and in your heart, and, they, and you resonate with the truth of the Bible, then you will be truly saved. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. But if you are in Christ, then live as though you care to please him. Live as though you would not only be a little happy, but as though you would be ecstatic and filled with great joy to hear those words from your Savior when he invites you to enter his rest. Well done, good and faithful servant. And finally, live as though you want God glorified through your life. Paul helps me greatly with his encouragement that we find in his letters. In Ephesians 1, 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And in Ephesians 2, 10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Not to earn his favor, but if he has saved us, then he has prepared for us to do good works. And Paul often uses uh, contrasting phrases like, you were but now. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 13, it says, Therefore remember 
that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now... But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Again, in Galatians 4, he says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? If you are in Christ, what you were is not what you are now. So walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Ephesians 4.1 Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, the calling to which you've been called. Ephesians 4, 17 to 20, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous, and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Philippians 1.27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or an absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, For God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. Obedient people strive to obey. I know that sounds like circular logic. Well, of course, if they're obedient, they strive to obey. But I want you to consider it this morning. If you have been obedient to put faith in Christ, then strive to continue in obedience to his word. Be humble enough to admit when you're off track. We are to learn and keep all the commands of Christ, all the commands of Scripture. Why? In response to his great gifts, first of all. Second, that we might please him. And third, that we might glorify him. Our examples this morning have been Mary and Joseph. May we emulate their pattern of obedience for God's glory. Revelation tells us about 24 elders who will throw their crowns before the throne of God. And this is recognition that Christ deserves all glory. Even glory we may receive because of him gets turned back to him. After all, any of us are privileged to serve him. In the end, we're only doing our duty. Some arrogant people believe that God is going to thank them for how wonderful they were. And how much they deserve great credit for their service. Yet, true servants will acknowledge that we were never worthy. We were never worthy to receive this grace. And we were never worthy to receive any kind of honor for what we may have done or will do. The truth is, we are slaves to whom nothing is owed. Luke 17.10, so you also... 
when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. So my friends, in response to his great gifts and that we may please him and that we may bring glory to his name as servants, let us be the obedient who strive to obey. Let us be the humble. Let us resist our own proud nature and submit to God and his will for our lives. Lord, help us to do it, I pray. Father God, I thank you for this glorious word of God, which tells us of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the majesty of God, your holiness, Lord, our need for a Savior and your provision of it. Lord, I thank you that through your word, you remind those of us who are saved to have confidence in that salvation. And yet at the same time, you remind us to press forward. You remind us to live in a manner worthy of our calling, a manner worthy of the gospel of grace. Lord, we are so thankful to be able to serve you. I pray that in this coming year, we would do so better and better each day. Lord, if there is any false convert in this midst today, either watching online or here, Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit and your word, you would draw that person to true faith, to true reliance on you, and not works that we've done. And Lord, let any of the works that we who are saved by you be done in those ways and not in some way where we think we're going to earn favor from you. Oh, Lord, may we serve you well. May we do it, Lord, because we want to honor you with our lives, because we want to show the glory of God through our lives. Lord, that we want to show our love to you, to you and to others. Lord, forgive us for the times we fall short and empower us by your Holy Spirit to do this work we're called to do because without your power, In your empowerment, Lord, by the Holy Spirit, we are unable to do any of it. Lord, let us be a great representative of you as individuals and as Oasis Church here in Loxahatchee, Florida this morning and throughout this year. May may the world that knows us and sees us know that we are yours, that we are those who are in Christ and united under that front, Lord. May we display a unity, and a beauty that the world has never seen before. For your glory, God, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing one more song. Tanisha and the band are going to lead us.